This is the message given by Pastor James Lim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for July 16, 2023. The title of the message is Saved to Teach, Part 4, Younger Men. While we come now to uh, the reading and preaching of God's Word, the means of grace in which God conveys um, uh, truth through the gospel. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's uh, epistle to Titus, the, the last of his pastoral epistles, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now, my, um, as we continue on, we've been looking at Paul's instruction to Titus, uh, looking at the, the various people that Paul instructs uh, to, to learn and to teach. So we begin with older men, uh, the characteristics that he calls them to have in the first uh, two verses, and then older women, and, and how they are to characterize the Christian life as well as pass it on through teaching what is good to the younger woman. And then younger women who are being trained by the older woman to live godly lives, uh, you know, loving their husbands and their children, and then experiencing uh, or, or taking on the characteristics of self-control and purity and, and working at home. And then we come now to the fourth group. And so here now the reading of God's holy word uh, in verses 6 through 8. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And this is the reading of God's holy word. There's an epidemic sweeping uh, our nation and our culture. It's not a crisis, not a mental health crisis, although it is. There, I mean, it's an epidemic as well. Uh, it's not... Um, uh, no, it, it's not the fentanyl crisis, although that is also an epidemic and, and really hurting our, our country. Uh, it's really interesting that uh, throughout the pandemic uh, and as a result of, of um, the fentanyl um, distribution uh, throughout the country and how easily readily available it is, and so many people have overdosed and died, it's really interesting that along with the pandemic and the, uh, the increase in overdoses that, that for the first time, I think maybe a couple of years ago, the first time the average age of, of the average lifespan of an American person has decreased. Uh, so many people have died as a result of, of that. But uh, this, I think, is a deeper underlying crisis and epidemic in our country. It's the crisis of that is um, that is 
hitting young men in our country. Uh, there have been studies more recently about uh, all, all the statistics of regarding young men. Let me read to you a little bit from Dave, David Brooks's uh, op-ed in the New York Times uh, describing the crisis of young, uh, boys and young men in our culture. He says this, they are struggling in the classroom. American girls are 14 percentage points more likely to be school-ready than boys at age five. Controlling for parental characteristics. By high school, two-thirds of the students in the top 10% of the class, ranked by GPA, are girls, while roughly two-thirds of the students at the lowest decile are boys. In 2020, at 16 top American law schools, not a single one of the flagship law reviews had a man as an, as an editor-in-chief. Men are struggling in the workplace. One in three American men with only a high school diploma, uh, numbering 10 million men, is now out of the labor force. The biggest drop in employment is among young men aged 25 to 34. Men who entered the workforce in 1983 will earn about 10% less in real terms in their lifetimes than those who started a generation earlier. Over the same period, women's lifetime earnings have increased 33%. Pretty much all of the income gains that middle-class American families have enjoyed since 1970 are because of increases in women's earnings. Men are also struggling physically. Men account for, for close to three out of every four deaths of despair, suicide and drug overdoses. For every 100 middle-aged women who died of COVID up to mid-September uh, 2021, there were 184 middle-aged men who died. Uh, it seems like men are struggling not only in the culture and in our communities, but they are struggling in the church as well. Um, our church is not immune. The same uh, cultural trends, the, the same social trends affect our church. Um, young men are stilted in their maturity. They um, do not develop uh, in terms of, of life stages the way that past generations have. Um, and, you know, some people chalk it up to overcorrecting in terms of, you know, like, for example, feminism, trying to just lift up, trying to lift up women who had been marginalized and pushed down, right? But, but uh, some people think that, uh, that um, in, in raising up equality of women in the culture, uh, they push down men. And that, that may be true. Uh, or they've put so much effort into lifting women up that men have just fallen uh, because, the, because the traditional roles and, and um, stages in the life of young people um, are not what they used to be. So young men are just feel lost. They don't know how to, what it means to be mature. They don't know what it means to have the discipline to to study hard, right? That's why, you know, if you go to any college campus, um, 
the majority of, of, of any college is women. There's more women in college than men. Men are not going to college because they don't see the need for college. Um, the top, the top uh, grade earners, you know, are women because, because they um, have learned uh, in one way or another how to study and to discipline their lives. But the men have not been taught that. And so they fall away and they, they um, fail. And the same goes for, um, you know, for the church as well. Uh, and a big part, I think, for this crisis of young men and boys is that we take for granted that they need mentoring, that they need to be taught all of these things, how to be a man, how to mature as a man, and in the church, how to be mature and godly Christian men. So we don't give them the role models that they need. And in, as a result, they're, you know, I think we've, you know, I'm, and I, and I you know, confess this myself, um, that uh, maybe this is something that we, well, it's definitely something that we need to repent of, to more intentionally mentor our young men to be godly men, to, to, to model it ourselves, to intentionally teach them and lead them so that they know what maturity looks like rather than just simply, you know, leave me alone, let me play my video games, I'll get a job when I, when I, uh, when I have to. Um, and we need to teach them and mentor them. And so we've taken Christian manhood for granted. And, uh, and since we haven't done the work, we haven't seen the fruit, right? Uh, we, we reap what we sow. And if we haven't reaped mentoring them, then we're not going to sow anything. And that's exactly what we've seen. Uh, here in our passage, Paul understood this dynamic. He, he understood the problem that particularly that young men have. And so he addresses it by uh, telling Timothy and the older men implied here, to teach the young men, specifically mentoring them in particular and specific areas that uh, is a pitfall for them, areas in which they lack. Um, and so he instructs Timothy to mentor young men towards godly maturity. So how do we do that? What, what is it? Uh, how do we mentor and, and teach and lead young men uh, towards godly maturity. Look at verse 6. First, we have to mentor them to be self-controlled. I think Paul is very specific here. I mean, he, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, he, you know, Paul could have you know, written a whole another letter about the ways in which he could mentor, Titus is supposed to mentor young men, but he chooses one because he knows that if you can address this particular issue with young men, you can address every other issue that comes along with it, and that's self-control. He didn't just choose it randomly. He chose it because that's what young men lack, and that's what young men need, a sense of self-control. Boys will be boys. Young men will be men. And, and uh, as a, a, a former young man, I mean, you know, it feels like ages ago when, when I just graduated college and I felt like, you know, I had the rest of my life ahead of me. Um, you know, we're all the same in one way or another. 
We're impetuous, impulsive, quick-tempered, undisciplined, know-it-alls. And in Proverbs, um, you know, one of the themes of Proverbs is a father uh, training up his son in the way that he should go and teaching him the difference between foolishness and wisdom. And, you know, and so the, so the writer of Proverbs is saying that you have to train the foolishness out of the young man. And the way that Paul applies that idea is to, to teach them to be self-controlled. Self-control is, the, is that discipline in the Christian life in which you um, are not controlled by your passions, but you're controlled by the Spirit. And I'm going to touch on that in a little bit. You're controlled by the gospel. You're controlled by God's grace and faith in your life. You don't give in to every... Uh, every thought that comes in your into your mind, you don't you don't get angry. You're not quick tempered when you don't get your way. Um, and this is why I think this is why Paul lists self control as the very last of the fruit of the spirit. Right, um, Jonathan Edwards um, in his book Charity and Its Fruits, it's really interesting. He says. Basically, the fruit of the Spirit can be all be summarized in love, and then the rest of the fruit are, are just aspects of love. But here, you can maybe turn that around and you say, well, um, if all the fruits are aspects of love, then self-control is the focus of that love towards God and towards one another, and not, uh, not willy-nilly um, expressing the fruit in any which way you can. It's a very focused one. And, and, it's, and it's associated with the Spirit because, it's a, the, because we are controlled by the Spirit. And so, the, so self-discipline is the fruit of a disciplined faith. That's the point. And this is what young men of all, of all you know, cultures throughout history have struggled with. And this is what what they need to learn from older men. That we are no longer enslaved by our sins to indulge in sinful desires of the flesh. That we have been redeemed, rescued, and reconciled in order then to serve the Lord. And the way in which we do that is self-control. One writer says this, in our flesh, we are out of control. But by the Spirit, we live self-controlled lives. And this self-control is grounded then in the gospel um, to where we are no longer enslaved to our sinful desires and, and lusts and passions, but we are now servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are constrained. And this is the, maybe this is the right way to put it, is it is a self-constraining in service of Jesus in service of the greater good. Not being self-indulgent, but being, but being self-denying. To take up our cross and to follow Jesus, uh, not take up whatever we want and go our own way. That's the, that's the contrast of self-control and self-indulgence. And the reason, I, I think, at the core, at the heart of, self, of gospel self-control is the self-control that Jesus himself exercised as a young man. 
that there's a reason why Jesus died at the age of 33 or, or you know, kind of a ballpark figure. That's a young, he died a very young death. Is he died, uh, he, he died exercising um, godly, his godly youthfulness for our, our sinful youthfulness as a young man. And Jesus never lost control of his temper. He never uh, lost control of his anger. Uh, I think when Jesus overturned the money changers table in the, uh, in the temple, it was a controlled, righteous anger. He flipped the tables and he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he knew... He knew exactly what was going on in his own heart. He was self-disciplined, self-controlled, right? One of the things you hear throughout Scripture, and I think maybe we take for this for granted, but he, he woke, it was his custom, the writers of the gospel say, it was his custom to, to get up early in the morning before the sun went up into the wilderness to pray, to fellowship with the Lord. Uh, he... he um, knew he knew the people around him he exercised patience i mean you could i mean you can just imagine you know when uh, the when the disciples uh, were so obtuse and jesus got angry he could have you know he could have continued to rail on them but he didn't you know he said oh you have little faith uh, and so he models for us a self-control, and when he dies on the cross, um, he died because of our undiscipline, our sinfulness, our self-indulgence. And by faith, united to him, he gives us that self-control. And, and it is specifically for the young man to learn that. Uh, uh, I know that, you know, um, I think this, can, this is, uh, in some ways, we never grow out of this. I think we just learn it uh, better uh, as the years go by, but I think I still need to learn this as well. Is that self-control? You know, I think maybe maybe what Paul is is telling us here is you're not you don't have to, you don't struggle with self-control as much as you did when you were younger, but you still have to struggle with it. And um, so it's incumbent upon young men. I'll let you receive that as as you as you as you will. Um, we're all young men uh, in relationship to somebody. Uh, is that we have to intentionally seek out more self control in our lives. And older men, brothers, you know, and me as a pastor, uh, to the young men in our church, uh, I need to model that and to teach it uh, in, in terms of 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 godliness, that this is one of the markers of true godliness, which is self-control, not giving in to uh, your, your, your um, passions and, and, and your whims. Uh, secondly, we also have to mentor as, as examples of doers of good works. I mean, Paul isn't saying that we're saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. Young men need to learn this because part of that sinful immaturity of youth 
is a selfishness and self-centeredness that keeps them from doing good works. Why? Why does Paul juxtapose self-control with uh, being examples of good, good works? It's because good works is by definition not for self, but for God and for others. It is done out of love and self-sacrifice. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. Right? The way that Jesus loved us was he gave himself for us. Uh, and so if you're not self-controlled and all you know, you're selfish and self-centered, you will never do any good works for anybody because you're going to be looking out for number one. And this is how the gospel then empowers us to do good works. That we are saved by grace through faith, not by our works, but to do good works because of the good work that Christ has done for us. Luther said um, that God doesn't need our works, but our neighbors do. And so what that means is that Jesus is the example par excellence of the doer of good works for us. That everything he did was good. He was good in all that he accomplished. He, he lived a good life, the best life, a perfect life. He died a good death. That he was the good shepherd. Uh, that he was uh, without spot or blemish taking our place. And, uh, and you know that he, it was a good work when he breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished. Because it was work. The work of redemption, the work of atonement, the work of sacrifice. And he finished that good work on our behalf so that we might have it. And, and so he becomes a model, an example for us not only in saving us by his good works, but saving us for his good works to those around us. And so now we can do works because we have been saved, not to be saved. And so this is how we can disciple our young men and to show them how to do good works by giving them opportunities to do good works. That's, you know, I think... I think this is uh, one of the shortcomings in my own mind, is that I think um, someone, someone said it this way. Uh, the difference between cultures in, within churches where young people are, are vibrant and involved is that we train our young people to replace us. Rather, than, but in, in, in uh, I, I mean, I'm sorry, this is, when young people are not vibrant in the life of a church, and, uh, and it's like pulling teeth to get them involved. It's because we are trying to train them up to replace us. But in cultures and churches where young people are vibrant and they're taking the initiative and they're doing the work and they're taking over ministries is because we see them as those who um, reinforce the ministries that we do. That we're teaching them to help us not replace us. And so they see themselves as true partners in the life of the church and in ministries 
in, in whatever else, uh, whatever else part of the life they are in. And I think that that bears itself out. Uh, I think when young people have a purpose in any given circumstance, uh, they feel they're more invested. They are driven, more driven. They are happier in that context. And I think I was talking to uh, somebody about this. There was a recent study of young people uh, and and how, how they are happier, and this is an interesting study, is that how middle school students are happier because they're better at math and science. And, and, and the reason uh, that, that uh, the study, that the... the um, the um, people who did the study is that they experienced more what is called eudaimonia, which is a happiness of purpose. So when they learned math and science better, they were more instilled with a sense of purpose, and as a result, they were happier in their studies. They were happier students and happier people altogether. And I think that's what we need to do with our young people, particularly young men, is we need to... Uh, give them a sense of purpose in the life of the church. Not just uh, let it be a uh, lip service, but give them responsibilities, give them jobs, give them privileges uh, to reinforce and to work alongside us. And they will see that purpose and it will, they will be invested in it. Uh, rather than seeing uh, our church as mom and dad's church, the older generation's church, and I don't fit in. Um, and that's why I, I'm just so glad to see the young people who are taking the, up these leadership roles in our church, leading Bible studies, uh, doing the music, doing the work in the back. Um, so if we give our young men, our young people, opportunities to serve in the life of our church, I think they will be more invested. And, and as they're more invested, they will grow in their maturity because they want to grow in that purpose. Um, and then thirdly, uh, Paul goes on to call um, Titus and other older, older uh, men in the church to, to solid teaching, to solid doctrinal teaching with integrity, dignity, and soundness of speech that no one can um, oppose, that cannot be condemned, that will silence uh, evil naysayers. In other words, we have to be sound in both doctrine and life. Right? We can't be hypocrites. Our, our, we have to live what we teach. And so when we teach sound doctrine, we would live that sound doctrine uh, with integrity and dignity. And that, that's what integrity means, right? This idea of of, of intertwining in such a way that it makes it better, makes it stronger. It's in line with the intentions of both life and doctrine. So we have to teach with doctrinal as well as experiential and practical integrity in our lives. And this is important because young people, including young men, they, they see how we live and they can tell when we don't align what we teach with how we live. They can smell hypocrisy a mile away. For pastors, teachers, elders, and older Christians, we have to live what we teach. And when we do that, 
we will win the young men to maturity in the Lord. John Stott sums it up this way. Titus was, however, to influence the young men of Crete not only by his example, but also by his teaching. Perhaps the most important emphasis here is that people will not take seriously subjects serious, uh, serious subjects seriously unless there is a due seriousness in the preacher's manner and delivery. Richard Baxter uh, uh, said, whatever you do, let the people see that you, you are in good earnest. You cannot break men's hearts by jesting with them. Titus then was to combine purity of motive, soundness of matter, and seriousness of manner so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. You see, this is one of the most uh, common arguments against Christianity that people have. Is they, they say, look, they look at, at the life of, of Christians in the church and they say, look at that hypocrisy. Um, now, I would say that, that doesn't nece- it's not necessarily, a v- it's not always valid, but it's there. And and uh, and you know, and there's a sense of uh, a grain of truth to that. That um, you know, as I was saying last week, you know, if if following the gospel leads to a chaos in 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 a marriage and it, and it, uh, it causes damage in the life of people, then of course people are going to revile the word of God. They're going to say, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want anything to do with it. The same goes for hypocrisy in the life of the church. If our young people see that we're not living according to what we say, or what we, what we say we believe, that we're one way at church and we're a different way at home, uh, then we deserve all the, the, uh, the revulsion that, we, that they give us. And so we cannot let them do that. How do we fight it? We don't argue like, hey, you know, um, you just have to ignore the hypocrisy. What we have to do is we have to uh, encourage and teach people not to be hypocrites and to align their lives with the gospel, with the truth of the the Bible. And so we can't give them that ammunition. So my hope and prayer is that we would better disciple our young men by following Paul's instructions here. If you're a young man, these are the areas you you ought to deepen and mature in your faith and in your life. These are the ways that God's word tells you that you are immature. And so what do you do? Seek out a mentor. Look for a godly older brother or father in the faith who is more mature than you and let him be a Titus to you so that you can grow in self-control, that you can take, you can align your doctrine with your life, uh, that you would see the the truth of Christianity and you would take it all seriously, that you would model good works, that you would be integrated in doctrine and life, and that you would be a good witness so people can, can, can never speak ill of you or of Jesus, whom you follow. That the heart of all of this is the gospel of Jesus, the young man who died for young men so that young men could be like him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for 
for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, um, that you know exactly what we need to hear and how areas how we ought to grow. Lord, we never really graduate. We're never beyond what we need to learn. So help us to, to uh, take heart uh, these truths, not just for young men, but for us. However uh, old we are, we are always younger compared to somebody else. So help us then to take these words and to receive them and to take those words and to live them out for the, those who are younger than us. Uh, we ask, Lord, all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.